Welcome to CooperCast, Leonard Skinner episode part two. This is your host, Al's web dude, John Sachs. In this episode, Al talks about dealing with the band, getting them to do a movie song, how Ronnie ran the band, the great single, Sweet Home Alabama, their third album, and the plane crash. They now had a, a proper booking agent, and they kept playing. The first hit single was on the second album. I came up with the, their logo, which was spelling their name out of bones, like skull and crossbones bones. So I had that designed, and we used that, I think, on the f- first album cover. Was there any kind of interesting socio-whatever between this uh, Jewish guy from New York City and these Southern boys? Who was the Jewish guy from New York City, me? I think it was you. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, there was a, there was instant mistrust. I mean, instant, once we started to work. They had made an album, which they didn't finish uh, before they met me, with the, the guys from Muscle Shoals, Alabama. They had been through a similar situation. So what, the mistrust was musical or financial? Oh, well, they had a manager for, for financial. So it was a mistrust in terms of music. They didn't trust you to produce them in the way they would like. Well, they had a lot of trouble on on the, the album they did with the Muscle Shoals guys. So they already had some concern about the studio process. Yeah, there were, I think there was one song where when they went to record it, Ronnie said, can I talk to you? And we went outside the studio and he walked me to my car and he said, come back in an hour and a half. He did not want me there when they cut this song. Really? Yeah. And did you? Yeah. The worst that could happen is I wouldn't like it. And I talked him into cutting it again when I was there. Was it all right? Yeah. What do you think he thought you would do that they didn't like? I didn't like the song as much as some of the other ones. Huh. But it it made it onto the first album. Yeah, and I got and I actually got to like it in time. Probably the funniest thing was uh, I got them a chance to have a, a, a song in a in a big movie, which was a, a Burt Reynolds movie. I I forget the name of it because they're all the same. I knew the producer during the the Who tour when we were in California. I saw him in my spare time. And he said, um, I need a song for this scene. Yeah. And he showed me the scene. I said, uh, I have the band for you. I said, then they can write the song. I'll just tell them what the scene is about. So they did that. And we had to go into the studio. And it was the first time that they had recorded with their new drummer. So they had the song. They played it for me. And I said, there's something wrong here. And they said, what do you mean? I said, there's there's an extra beat in here somewhere. So it was in the drum fill that went from the opening of the song into the, the song was um, Saturday Night Special. And it was in, actually was in this Burt Reynolds movie in the first 15 minutes. And so I was counting and there was an extra beat when it came to after the intro, when they started this other groove going. So I said, just keep keep playing 
the transition between the intro and where the song starts. And so we did that and I was counting and it was the drum fill was in 5-4 time, which didn't bother me because I couldn't initially assess that. But there was this extra beat that was in there somehow. They didn't know what the difference between 5-4 and 4-4 time was. And they had learned the song the way they learned it. And like I said, this was the drummer's first time. And I tried to show them, and that was a waste of time. So I said, well, this song's going to have a 5-4 drum fill in it. And some people know it, and some people won't. So that was interesting. It went everywhere that way. Most people wouldn't notice it unless they were counting four beats to the bar. So that was that was pretty funny, and it wasted a, a good hour and a half of when we were recording the song. But I mean, as as they became more famous, if you go back to that time period, which is uh, 1972 to 1976, from that point on, their songs were used in a lot of movies. Matter of fact, it was more normal than abnormal. Did you see a lot of changes in the guys, in their self-image and how they acted as they became stars? Not really. They were very tight-knit. They still had a rehearsal place uh, where they lived in Jacksonville that was just off the water and was a beat-up shack. And that's where all these songs came to be, from the first album all the way through their whole career. Did They they wrote together as a band a lot? Uh, in some ways, yes. Ronnie always were, wrote the words. Was it clear who was in charge, or was it just clear that the band all agreed? If it became unclear at any point, Ronnie Van Zant would just kick the shit out of whoever the offender was. Physically? Yes. I didn't see much of that, but I certainly heard about it. My closest friend in the band was Ed King, because he wasn't Southern. He came from Southern California. And he was in the band Strawberry Alarm Clock. So he had some success before hooking up with Skinner. And he played guitar in Strawberry Alarm Clock. And when he first joined Skinner, he played bass. They opened for the Allman Brothers. But by this time, they they were famous. If I was the Allman Brothers, I would have kicked them off the tour. <laughs> because they were much more interesting than the Allman Brothers. At what point did they become clearly the main act? Uh, When they toured the second album. Well, between the first and the second album, uh, Ronnie called me and said, we just worked up a new song, but I want to come up there and record it right now before it changes. It's very important to me because I have it worked out just the way I want it. I said, I don't have a problem with that. Let me get studio time. I said, but the night before we go in to record it, let's get a rehearsal studio and let me hear you play it. If if I have any two cents I want to put into it, because I'm sure you can record it in one day. And if I want to make any changes, that would be the time that I would do it. So he was asking me a favor, I was asking him a favor, and it worked out. And the song was uh, Sweet Home Alabama. Sweet Home Alabama made it to number eight. Yeah. 
just wondering if it was a smoother process, the second album, or was it rougher because they had stronger sense of who they were? It was actually a little easier because we'd already been through the first album. And they probably trusted you now. I don't think they ever trusted me. Really? Yeah. They didn't trust you musically? I don't think of it like that. I just don't think they ever trusted me. I'll be damned. We were not anything alike, except I appreciated what they did. Did they recognize that you had an important role in getting them from level, you know? Otherwise, they would have either beat me up or left me. They were that rough, huh? Yeah. We put a Don't Ask ask Me No Questions as the first single. Because I didn't see there being a single that could top Sweet Home Alabama. So I I said, well, let's put this out because it's the ne- the next closest thing to a single. Was the band uh, really totally tuned in to where Sweet Home Alabama was on the hit parade? Oh, yeah. It was the biggest thing in their life to have a top 10 single. And in a lot of places, a number one single. Now they had, because of the manager, they had a proper tour and they probably had, I remember I went to a few gigs. One, they opened for the Allman Brothers and blew them off the stage. I enjoyed that. And they had they had a great live show. They always did. But when people were cognizant of the songs, then it was different. And they, they, once they came out on stage, they had the audience. And I don't think the Allman Brothers liked that. Ronnie Van Zant was the only singer in the band. But even when you first heard them in the in the, in the bar in the club, they already they were already into singing harmony uh, behind behind Van Zant. Yeah, but I mean, I put black girl singers on Sweet Home Alabama, and I had to do that in another city when they weren't there. I just played it for them, and I told them, you know, who was singing on it, big singers, and they liked it. So it wasn't a tough thing, but I did it. They weren't there when I did it. It was a geographical problem. I have to go to Los Angeles to do it. I didn't have those kind of singers in uh, Atlanta. I used these girls for years, and I knew it wouldn't be a problem because they were the top singers in L.A., and that's what I would do. I did that my whole career. If there were guy background singers, I did it there. Third album, Nothing Fancy, 1975. They didn't have any songs. So the the beginning of doing the album, I just sat around while they wrote songs. Also, they were very adamant about where they recorded. They stopped listening to me, and they listened to the engineer, who I had nothing to do with because I was being taken to a studio. And the engineer came with the studio. And this guy, uh, I think, was really interested in usurping me and walking away with the whole thing. I remember vividly at Ronnie Van Zandt's funeral that he was dressed in a robe and presided over the funeral. And by this time, I, I was out of the picture completely. But he was still there. And then we spent the, the first day uh, because we were in a new studio, uh, getting a drum sound, which is complicated when you're working in a studio. We spent the whole first day getting the drums to sound good. And then I came in the next day 
and the mics were all ripped down. I went, what's this? And I said, uh, Bill thinks he can get us a better sound. So that was the beginning of the end. Whatever I tried to do when he was there, I couldn't do. Well, I don't think they wanted me anymore. And the next album they did was the worst album they ever made. I did the first three albums, after the first two and a half. They sent Ed King to be at the mixing sessions. He represented the band. I didn't want to do another album with them. What it was that I did was being pushed out the door. So the fourth album they did was the least successful of all their albums. With that engineer. Well, also they had another producer. Yeah, they had another album. They had replaced Ed King with uh, another guy, and this helped them tremendously. And they made a great album. I mean, I like that album. Plane Crash, Van Zant, Steve Gaines, backup singer Cassie Gaines, assistant road manager Dean Kilpatrick, the pilot and co-pilot were killed on impact. Other band members, Collins, Washington, Wilkinson's Powell, Pyle, and Hawkins, and the tour manager suffered serious injuries. It was a very old plane. They ran out of gas because the gas tank misfunctioned during the flight. I got on a plane and went to the funeral. The drummer from the Atlanta rhythm section was there, and we sort of buddied up because we knew each other even longer than I knew him before I knew Skinner. And, uh, and it was sad. I mean, it was very sad. Both of us were uh, very moved. And, uh, I mean, I can't believe that I lived this long. I mean, but really, seriously. You're older enough than me that I was. Yeah, but I had, I had a way different life than you did. That's for damn sure. That's for damn sure. This has been Coopercast, the Leonard Skinner episode, part two. Look for more episodes coming up and subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or just about any podcast distributor.